my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, HS2 Return Journey. After asking last time why so many Greens oppose Britain's new high-speed railway, this week, the environmental arguments in favour. We hear from Steve Cordwell of Greens for HS2. He's hoping super-fast trains will mean the end of all domestic flights. They need to go, quite frankly. I don't think there is an excuse for a domestic aviation market in a country the size of the UK. That just doesn't compute to me. Against that, the ever-spiralling cost of HS2. Lord Barclay tells us why he's calling for an inquiry into whether MPs were misled over the spending of billions of pounds of taxpayers' cash, and he wants HS2 scrapped. There are plenty of alternative options for improving the capacity on the lines between London and the North for freight and passengers without spending this enormous amount of money and without wrecking the countryside. All that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast only exists thanks to the generosity of subscribers to the Byline Times. For £36 a year, you get a brilliant monthly newspaper, you help fund our website and this pod as well. We aren't owned by any media mogul, we don't dance to any corporate tune, so do subscribe if you can. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. What they've done is taken away something like 400 metres of that area, which has completely been decimated. All undergrowth, uh, wildlife, trees, hedges, etc., everything has gone. And we know just by the difference in the sound, the bird life, etc., in this area, how that has impacted. It's not just the birds uh, and the invertebrates. Obviously, there's larger mammals and things that you don't so readily see, and things like bats. And this is just multiplied along this route, the little ecosystems that have existed along here and and many of which have now been destroyed. That was Charlotte, an environmental campaigner, talking to me last week about the impact on her local woodland of HS2, the high-speed railway network currently under construction between London, the Midlands and the North. Supporters of the scheme point out that even the first section to Birmingham will help reduce journey times to other destinations by connecting with the West Coast mainline, serving Manchester, Glasgow, Liverpool, Preston and Wigan. Phase 1 is due to open between 2029 and 2033. But Natalie Bennett, who sits in the House of Lords for the Greens, argued that the entire project should be pulled. HS2 is the wrong project in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Green Party is, of course, very passionately supportive of rail travel and opposed to any expansion of airports and roads. But what the HS2 does, and this is something I was just counting back, I've been saying this for more than a decade, HS2 focuses money, people and resources even more on London, which is the last thing that the country needs. HS2 was designed for speed, even though that's not really what it's delivering in terms of people's travel times. And that straight line design for speed design means that it's slicing through the countryside, slicing through ancient woodland, cutting a swathe of destruction utterly unnecessarily. Natalie Bennett, and you can hear that interview in full on last week's Byline Times podcast. There is a counter movement, though. Greens for HS2. Among their members is Steve Cordwell, who is a Green Party councillor in Solihull, which will be home to a key interchange on the network. 
He was also the party's mayoral candidate in the West Midlands earlier this year. Why does he support HS2? Look, we're in the middle of a climate emergency. I think we all know that. And the Green Party, in its last manifesto, made a series of policy statements, one of which was that we have to be pushing really serious, meaningful modal shift. Transport emissions account for over a quarter of all our carbon emissions in this country. And we argued quite rightly that we have to do something really meaningful about that in order to get those emissions down. And as part of that manifesto, we spoke about doubling our rail capacity. And the reality is, certainly as as far as I can see, the only way that we're going to double our rail capacity is by actually putting more tracks down. And from the conversations that I've had with the rail industry professionals who know far more about this than I ever will, they all seem to be reasonably consistent in their suggestions that HS2 is the best, the fastest, actually the most cost effective way of doing that. So I don't personally think it is the wrong project at the wrong time. But having said that, if there is a better project that can be brought forward and achieves the same results with less environmental impact, I would be really happy to know more about it. I'm just not seeing that right now. But there are question marks, aren't there, about the entire concept of HS2, because Natalie Bennett made it clear that she opposes more roads building, that she supports more rail in this country. But HS2 in particular, she believes, is wedded to the idea of moving more people more often around the country. And she argues that's a mindset that we have to challenge. We appear to be at risk of falling into a mode of thinking that says that because of COVID, everybody can now work from home because we've seen that that is in fact possible in some cases. But the truth is that the home working revolution is only actually going to reduce travel at the margins. It won't reduce travel for people who have to travel for work, who have to be in offices. And more importantly, it's not going to reduce and indeed it may even increase travel for purposes not connected with employment. If people are working from home, they're going to want to be more flexible in where they work. They'll want to spend more time with family. They'll want to spend more time in nature that we know is really beneficial. And frankly, you can't visit the Lake District by Zoom and get the same effect as actually being there in person. And I think also there has to be a degree of pragmatism here in that we can say that people need to travel less. And that is true. Consumption in all forms needs to go down. However, there will still always be need to travel. And rightly so. People have travelled to seek opportunity and, and to build relationships for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I think just saying that needs to stop. It's unlikely to go down well with our electorate. So we do still need to be finding ways of travelling, but they need to be more environmentally sensitive. And actually, electrified rail is one of the most environmentally sensitive ways that you can travel. I'm not sure there is a better way of actually getting around than doing it on a, a modern, comfortable, high-speed electric railway. Although the argument runs that it would be more prudent from an environmental point of view and from a broader social and economic perspective to, for example, expand the Trans-Pennine rail route to have better intra-city routes around the Midlands rather than focusing on a route 
which once again seems to assume that London is the centre of our economic life in the UK? I think there's a challenge in that question, and the challenge is one of scarcity. And we seem quite often to fall into this trap of saying, we can't do that because we have to do this. And actually, I think that's a false dichotomy. We have to be saying we have to do that and we have to do this. Specifically, the cases that you spoke about with TransPennine and connectivity around the West Midlands. Midlands Engine Connect is a three billion pound project that's being brought forward to improve connectivity in, in the East and West Midlands. They're largely in favour of HS2. The Northern Powerhouse Rail is a multi-billion pound project that is directly dependent on HS2 phase 2B, Western and Eastern legs. So it's not that or this, it should be that and this. Sure, except that it doesn't have to be either one thing or the other, that that isn't necessarily a dichotomy. But we also know that post-COVID, we're perhaps heading towards a, a period of austerity and government, in reality, does make choices between Project A and projects maybe B, C, D, E and F. So sometimes there are hard choices that have to be made. I think that that framing is a question of political will. The hardest reality that we have to face is, as I said at the beginning of this, we're in the middle of a climate emergency and our economic concepts are not really of any interest to nature when it comes to some of the challenges that we're facing around our natural world. So if this government is going to frame the really vital choices and vital projects from a, a scarcity perspective, then I think it's part of the role of the Green Party to say, sorry, that's not the right way of going about this. And actually, major infrastructure projects that take a really long time to get going and are really expensive and don't always have a obvious correlation between cost and benefit, as is the case with HS2, they still need to be done. And it's really important that they need to be done. And if we've got a government that doesn't grasp that, we should be getting them voted out and getting a government in that does. HS2's own figures suggest it may be six decades or more before HS2 is carbon neutral. If, as you suggest, we live at a time of climate emergency, then six decades is surely too long to wait for a carbon neutral rail network. So I think HS2 has a huge challenge, and that challenge is set down by the Department for Transport. So the HS2 business case is thousands of pages long, and it's a challenge to anybody to read it, but I have managed to make my way through at least some of it. And the business case is not just the economic case, there's a strategic case as well. And whilst in purely pound, shillings and pence terms, HS2, it wipes its face. It has a, what they call a benefit-cost ratio greater than one, just about. But its strategic case is where the true benefits are identified. And it comes back to this question of moving those high-speed services off of the existing Victorian rail network so that we can run a huge amount more local and regional commuter services and a huge amount more freight than we can today because of all the space that those high-speed services take up. And 
The carbon dioxide question I find a really interesting one because A, numbers really vary depending on who you talk to. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that some of the environmental organisations were saying that HS2 wouldn't be cost neutral for 120 years in terms of its carbon emissions. You've mentioned six decades there. There's also research on the Greens for HS2 website that says that actually with the correct policy levers in place, it could be possible for HS2 to be carbon neutral in less than 10 years. It all depends on how we actually use that infrastructure. But there's a wider piece there as well, Adrian, which is that I think that the total carbon emission from construction of HS2 is somewhere between 9 and 11 million tonnes of carbon dioxide. Now, that sounds like a huge figure, but it's actually equivalent to one month's worth of traffic emissions on the strategic road network. So when you set it in the context of our overall carbon emissions as a society, actually, really, it's not that great at all. When you look at the potential benefit that it can bring in terms of really obsolescing the requirement for domestic aviation in this country, the potential carbon savings there are enormous. So whilst, yes, in absolute terms, 11 million tonnes is a lot of carbon, we should be looking at that as an investment, a modal shift that allows us to regain orders of magnitude more carbon than that from our budget through to 2030 and beyond. How do you think that HS2 then will benefit the country as a whole, given that when phase one starts, it will go to Birmingham, but beyond Birmingham, it will join with the existing rail network and link to destinations in Scotland and so on. What do you think its primary benefit will be? The primary benefit of HS2 isn't actually so much in terms of what it brings to the travellers that want to travel between, say, Birmingham, London, because as some of the detractors rightly say, you can do that now. It's about that capacity release. Now, where I live in, in Solihull, there's a station about 10 minutes up the road from me, and that gets served, I think, between once and twice an hour for trains into Moore Street. The rest of the time, if you stand on that platform, you're watching fast trains go between Moore Street, Solihull, Warwick Parkway, Marlebone, and that's about it. If you take those trains out of the way and put them onto HS2, which is like an expressway for trains, basically, you stop watching those trains fly past your station and you start getting on them instead to get into Birmingham, to get into Solihull, to get to Dorridge and Leamington Spa and all those places. And when you have that real choice, that real flexibility, it means A, more people are likely to use those services because they're more convenient. And B, because the additional capacity is there, simple economics tells us that prices should come down because there is more supply. So that really is the benefit of HS2. And that will only keep accruing as more of the line gets completed. But you touched on the idea of modal shift, people switching from one form of transport to another. Nobody flies, for example, from Birmingham to London. There is no flight available between Birmingham and London. But the argument often made is that flights from further north in the UK, for example, between Manchester and London, between Scotland and London, flights will become less attractive relative to rail if HS2 can significantly reduce the journey time. Correct. Yes, absolutely that. So HS2, even once phase one is completed, I think takes almost an hour off the journey time by rail from London to Manchester, for which there is a significant domestic aviation market at the moment. 
So yes, it will make using rail instead of air much more attractive. And I forget how many millions of flights a year it is from London airports to the Scottish Belt airports, but it's a lot. It's too many. And they need to go, quite frankly. I don't think there is an excuse for a domestic aviation market in a country the size of the UK. That just doesn't compute to me. No, it is puzzling, though, isn't it, that both Manchester and Birmingham airports have come out in favour of HS2, which suggests that they they regard it as a driver of the aviation market. Yeah, and there's a couple of things there. I, I know this is a challenge that often gets served up by people in my party and outside. And looking at the Green Party policy side of things first, we explicitly have a policy that says that we will work to extend public transport infrastructure to airports to prevent people having to drive to them. So that's reasonably clear. We should be supporting HS2 as a means of getting to airports. London, Manchester, Birmingham, they're not just domestic airports. They also serve short and long haul flights. And whilst we desperately need to do something about the proliferation of aviation internationally as well, nobody is seriously suggesting that we stop everybody from flying forever. Because quite apart from anything else, that's not going to get you elected and you're never going to implement that policy. So it's a non-starter. But HS2 themselves, though, say that only 1% of flights will shift to rail as a result of HS2. For for the massive investment that HS2 involves, is that really enough? Is that really worth it? Well, this goes back to what I was saying before about the business case for HS2 and the rules that the Department for Transport and the Treasury impose on major projects when they pitch for funding. I won't say they're a bit daft, but they're certainly limiting and constraining. And one of the things that HS2 was specifically forbidden from modelling as part of its business case would be the effect of extrinsic policy changes on its viability. So that modelling is based on a modal shift without any policy initiatives whatsoever to drive it. So that would just be natural market shifts. And this really comes back to what I was saying before, Adrian, about how for this to be really effective, it needs political will as well as the infrastructure. And there's a really critical point there, which is that political will can change more or less overnight. What doesn't happen quickly is infrastructure. Infrastructure is hard, it's expensive, and it takes a really long time. And on that basis, when you can see that that infrastructure has value, as I think we can with HS2, when you look at the wider business case and not purely in economic terms, it makes sense to build it whilst lobbying for the political change to ensure that it delivers its best value. And as I will continue to argue, that's what the Green Party should be doing at the moment. Along the way, though, we've got what environmental campaigners that I've spoken to regard as massive destruction of the countryside, ancient woodland. For the podcast last week, I went to see the Welsh Lane protest camp in Warwickshire near Leamington Spa. And I saw for myself this massive swathe that had been cut out of some beautiful countryside to accommodate HS2. And that's happening at over 100 sites across the country. As a green, I just wonder how you can square that with your core beliefs. Yeah, and it's really difficult as a Solihull councillor 
I sit on our planning committee. I've seen the planning applications for some of the hall routes and for some of the site clearances that HS2 has needed to conduct in my borough. And it's really hard, and I, and I won't argue with that. I think there's been some slightly misleading quoting of figures when it comes to the arguments about ancient woodlands. I think 108 is the number that gets bandied around. 108 ancient woodlands are destroyed by HS2. I mean, that's fundamentally untrue and inaccurate. I believe it was the Woodland Trust identified 108 woodlands within a, I think it was a three kilometre radius of the HS2 line. Less than half of those are actually directly affected at all by HS2. And the overall take, the land take of ancient woodland through all the phases is, I think, 54 hectares. And obviously, that's 54 hectares more than I would like to see lost. However, it took about 10 years to finalise the line for HS2, that route that is now being built, was the best part of a decade in consultation and design refinement. It is the best that it can be. And HS2 has committed to no net biodiversity loss. I think that should actually be a net biodiversity gain, and that's something that I impress on them every chance I get in Solihull. But again, this is something that needs to be set in context. If you put that against the A14 widening out to Peterborough, I think that lost something in the region of, of 87 hectares for a 14-mile stretch of road. The Silvertown Tunnel is losing a roughly equivalent acreage of woodland for a tunnel that's only a few miles long. HS2 is something like 470 miles in its overall length. So again, it's an emotive figure, but it needs to be set in its proper context. Sure, but people don't just talk about the amount of acreage that's lost here, but they, they talk about loss of habitats because if you drive a great big train route through woodland, whether it's ancient or not, you're actually making that habitat less sustainable for the wildlife that lives there. And that's very true. And one of the things that I know that the project has committed to doing is to actually transplanting some of that habitat into different areas. And I know that that concept has met with some I think scorn is probably the right word, but actually that was done during HS1 as well. And yeah, there's been some lessons learned from how to do that better, but actually largely it was successful. And I've spoken to some of the conservation engineers that were involved in the HS1 Eurotunnel link, and they said actually it worked pretty well. And it's something that they're confident that they can do again. I think the wider point is when it's your woods, when it's the areas that you've grown up in and you've treasured and you've formed memories in, it's super challenging. And I don't think anybody would seek to diminish that. Last week, I was speaking to a family in Balsall Common who are absolutely devastated at the loss of the Kenilworth Greenway. And it is difficult to square that against the need. And it is an absolutely driving need for sustainable infrastructure to enable our country to organize itself differently and to get us away from our massive dependency on cars and roads that we have at the moment. One final question, and it's one about the cost, because whatever the environmental benefits as you see them for HS2, no one can deny that its costs have risen dramatically since it was first mooted. So an initial budget of £32.7 billion. We're now talking about more than £44 billion for phase one between Birmingham and London. The Okavi review 
estimated in 2020 that the cost of HS2 would be 106 billion pounds. There have been other estimates published which suggest it would exceed that as well. So purely from a financial point of view, if you thought if we can get 106 billion pounds invested in cheaper or free bus fares across the country, in upgrading the existing rail network, if that money is there and you believe in public transport infrastructure, wouldn't improving what we already have be more beneficial? in light of the climate emergency, than building HS2? So again, I think this is a yes and question, not an either or question. I think we should be having massive investment in bus services throughout the country, particularly in rural areas where sometimes you get one bus a day on a Sunday. And frankly, I think that there's 27 billion quid going towards the next five years worth of road building that should be diverted to funding that. More widely, I think that figure has to be put in some context. Let's say HS2 is going to be £100 billion. As I understand it, the cost envelope is £88 billion, including contingencies at 2019 prices. Yeah, that's the official budget at the moment. That's the official budget. Now, that's about 3% of the Department for Transport's overall spend on a per year basis over the life of that project. So it isn't defunding any of the other important infrastructure works that DFT needs to be doing it isn't defunding electrification of the existing rail network it isn't preventing preventing other services from coming on stream or being improved and again we have to look at that figure that 100 billion or whatever it is in the context of the life cycle of hs2 which is predicted to last at least 120 years so when you amortize that figure across its life cycle it's less than a billion pounds a year and when you look at the benefits that it brings in terms of that additional capacity, in terms of that eight grams per passenger mile per kilometer CO2 emissions versus what we're dealing with today with our existing road network. I think it's money really well spent and we should be spending more of it on lots of other good things like that. Steve Cordwell from Greens for HS2. I'm Adrian Goldberg and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, aside from the question of the environmental benefits or otherwise of the new railway, there's the cost which has ballooned since the project was first mooted in 2009. As we reported last week, Labour peer Tony Barclay is calling for an inquiry into whether MPs were misled over the budget when they voted to approve HS2 in 2017. Lord Barclay is an engineer by profession and worked for 15 years on the Channel Tunnel. So he's not someone who opposes large infrastructure projects on principle. He was also deputy chair of the independent Okavi Review, commissioned by the government, which concluded last year that HS2 should go ahead, although he quit before its findings, with which he disagreed, were made public. You'll hear him refer in the interview to Michael Bing. He's an infrastructure consultant, widely respected in the railway industry. The Department for Transport has described his calculations as baseless and false. Feel free to use your own skill and judgment as to which side you believe. But when did Lord Barclay first become concerned about the cost of HS2? Well, I've been worried about it from the beginning, which was about 2010. Having spent 15 years of my life building the Channel Tunnel and then 
watching HS1 being built in various stages, I'm acutely aware of costs and programme. And equally important, does the project deliver what it says on the tin, so to speak? And it was quite clear to me that we were trying to build in this country a project which was totally out of kilter with what was needed because they were trying to build something which was going to be the fastest railway in the world. Now, in a small country like the UK, you don't actually need to get to Birmingham or Manchester a couple of minutes quicker. The key is to have something that is reliable, good capacity, and get there a little bit quicker. So I started comparing the specification that they were doing with the likely related costs and realized that it was a highest speed railway like this at 400 kilometers an hour. You had to go very straight, which meant that you couldn't go round parts of the country which needed to be avoided if possible. You had to have a very expensive track and you had to have very expensive stations and lots of points and everything and lots of platforms to make sure that you didn't lose half a minute if you stopped a station in the middle. So I thought it was thoroughly over-specified. And that's where I started. And originally, HS2, depending on who you talked to, had a budget of something like £32.7 billion pounds or £37 billion. These were the original estimated budgets, but it rapidly became clear that the real cost was going to be significantly higher. Indeed. um, In January 2012, the cost, including the rolling stock, was estimated by the government at £32 billion, as you said. Now, the latest estimate which I believe is the correct one, which has basically come from Michael Bing's work, is 160 billion. But of course, this is for the whole project. This is not the end of the the increases by a very long way. But going from 12 billion to 160 billion is no surprise to me, given the high specification, but it's not going to end there. And that's the biggest worry of the lot. Although the government wouldn't recognise that figure, would it? The official budget for HS2 at the moment is closer to £88 billion, and they disagree with the cost estimates that you're quoting. Indeed, they have always disagreed with the cost estimates that I've quoted, mainly using Michael Bing's figures. But the interesting thing is that all the way through this long, it's an 11-year debate now, even though they disagreed with the figures that we produced, you find that a couple of years later, they actually come up with very similar figures. And their comment always at the time is, we don't recognise your figures. (laughs) And I said, well, what are your figures? And how have you worked them out? And they said, well, they're confidential. Well, if they're going to hide behind confidentiality here, then... They have to, I'd suggest, justify why their figures are better or more reliable than mine and Michael Bing's. And they've not done that so far. Worse still, I believe they've told lies, or we mustn't call them lies, we must call them misrepresenting the truth to ministers and parliament in a regular basis. 
And I think the most telling piece of information, which came from an interview from an HS2 senior employee a couple of years ago when he was asked by a parliamentary committee, why did you not ensure that the ministers and the senior officials knew the real cost of the project? And the answer was, well, if we told Parliament the real cost, they'd have probably cancelled it. Now, that is not a very honest approach to projects costing an enormous amount of money. One of the key areas of dissent was around the cost of acquisitions of land and property. And before the scheme received parliamentary assent in 2017, there were two senior figures at HS2 who say that they had told HS2 that these costs were underestimated. A guy called Doug Thornton, who was one of their directors, and then later another director, Andrew Bruce, told Panorama on the BBC that about half an hour before he was due to present his paper illustrating that they had underestimated by around £2.8 billion the true cost of land and acquisitions, that he was fired. Yes, I know about that. And these two people you mentioned are extremely experienced. One of them, the first one, was was the property director for Tesco, which, of course, is a very, very big job, a big company. And Andrew had a very senior position in the military, so they knew what they were talking about. And because they refused to, shall we say, go against their professional views for the sake of getting the government out of a hole, they were sacked. And these two gentlemen who were sacked and marched out of the office, they are the original, shall we say, whistleblowers who have done the project a great service by exposing these things that's a very severe adverse effect to their future careers. You were invited to take part into a review of HS2, not only as to the cost of it, but whether it should actually proceed at all. Now, you obviously have a significant background in infrastructure, in engineering projects. You are a Labour peer, though. Why do you think you were asked to take part in the review? Well, I have been fairly vociferous about the costs and the delays and the specification of HS2 from the beginning. And I think ministers wanted to try and find a balanced group of people to provide what they thought would be independent advice to them as to decide whether HS2 should go ahead or not. I did find that the so-called independence wasn't there. We were all supposed to sign non-disclosure agreements, and we soon found that we couldn't actually bring in or suggest bringing in independent people who might have not been paid the HS2 shilling to give a different view on it, and it all became very difficult and would they sign NDAs and everything else. And it was all quite clear to me that regardless of what we put in our draft. And I stayed there until the sort of final draft was, I thought, nearly agreed. You know, it was quite clear to me that even though the evidence showed that the project was well over budget, 
it did not have the cost-benefit ratio that is required by the Treasury for big projects to go ahead and that the benefits should exceed the costs. And that whatever the arguments, the chairman and the HS2 Department of Transport were intent that the Okavy report would advise that it should go ahead. And that's the time when I resigned and produced my own report. And I think my concerns were justified when, I think about a year later, Doug Okavy, who was a good friend, was asked why he'd gone ahead. And he said, well, we did it because the construction industry needed support. And then I discovered, of course, that he'd been to a very interesting dinner with the construction industry leaders, wouldn't say what it was about. And of course, the problem there is that the bits of the industry that need support is the railway sector, not, not the civil engineering, because there's plenty of civil engineering and building works going on. There have been since then, and there still are, and of course there's a shortage now. But the railway works are the ones which still need continuity, particularly electrification. For HS2, that's probably 10 years away. If they'd spent the money on local and regional services through network rail, they would have got a much better continuity for these higher tech industries that we all want to see encouraged. So the pressure from the big contractors persuaded Doug, who after all comes from the construction industry, that this was a necessary thing to do. You now believe that Parliament was misled earlier than that in early 2017 when royal assent for HS2 was given. Why? Well, I've got lots of evidence from papers, starting off from a conference in the Said Business School in Oxford, I think in 2016, where the experts on HS2 said that it could not possibly be built for anything like the cost that was in the documents being presented to Parliament. That meeting was an important meeting and the information was fed to Boris Johnson. We know that. And they're all trying to hide it and explain that wasn't the case, but it was the case. And then um, later on, the minister concerned, who was Nasgani MP, on many occasions stated that the cost was um, still the cost that was in the parliamentary documents, when there is very strong evidence from people who used to work for the Department of Transport and OHS2 that ministers knew that the cost was significantly higher. But they've been trying to obfuscate these figures for years. Is it a budget cost? A final cost? Does it include things like electricity generation for the extra train power? Does it include the rolling stock? And that's why it's very, very difficult to challenge people unless one's got the documentation. Now, I now do have the documentation, um, thanks to a lot of friends who've supplied it. And that's why I've written to the Cabinet Secretary, suggesting or asking him to review whether ministers misled Parliament in these years before the final decision was made. And unfortunately, the process is that such a review has to be undertaken with the Prime Minister's consent. Well, given Boris Johnson's 
known views on HS2, I can see it could be difficult for him to authorise a review. But I think there needs to be a review. We have all the documentation. And I think there's many questions that the ministers and former ministers and the senior officials need to answer and be challenged in a proper open inquiry. But you have no doubt in your own mind and based on the evidence that you've gathered that Parliament was misled and had it not been misled, it might well have voted not to give assent to HS2. I'm convinced that Parliament was misled. What decision it would have made if it had had the real figures, as I call them, I don't know. That's for them to decide. But I think they would have probably challenged the government and HS2 a great deal more than they actually did. But the key is that this project started in 2009-10, and we're now 11 or 12 years afterwards. The demand for high-speed travel has changed dramatically, largely because of COVID, but maybe for other reasons as well. And there's a complete refusal by the government to consider what changes to HS2, whether it's abandonment or reducing the scope of it or the speed or cutting bits of it. They're just denying everything. And that's costing the taxpayer, well, 160 billion. (laughs) There have been media reports suggesting that the Leeds leg of HS2, the phase that branches off from Birmingham towards the East Midlands to Sheffield, and ultimately to Leeds and then joining up with the existing rail network there, that that phase might be scrapped. The government have said that isn't the case. What do you think is likely to happen? I think it's likely that it will be scrapped, but I'm hopeful that a good proportion of the cost of it will be allocated to improving the local and regional lines in those areas instead. In other words, to give the people in the north from Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield and on to the Humber and York a much improved service. It doesn't need to be high speed. It needs to be reliable. It needs to have good capacity and shorter journey times. It doesn't need to be going at the speeds of HS2. Similarly, from Birmingham to Derby, Nottingham and up to Leeds, the same thing could happen there. If they were given somewhere between 20, 30 billion out of the HS2 budget, Network Rail could do an enormous amount of work there. The other advantage is that if HS2 ever was going to reach Leeds, say, it's probably 2040, before any benefit would accrue to the passengers there or in between. If they make smaller improvements on all these routes, then the benefits for some of them will come much more quickly. In your view, should that route and HS2 in its entirety be scrapped? I think now with what we know about demand and the changing wishes of the population, the answer is yes. It would only cost about $7 in scrappage charges, if you like. The land could still be used, 
And the key thing is that there are plenty of alternative options for improving the capacity on the lines between London and the north for freight and passengers without spending this enormous amount of money and without wrecking the countryside. Lord Tony Barclay. The Department for Transport has said that in February last year, the government reset HS2 and established a realistic budget, strengthened oversight and increased transparency. They say that as part of this, a minister now reports to Parliament every six months on progress, including on cost and schedule. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. Find out how to subscribe to the Byline Times at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. See you next time.